Hello, and thank you again for joining us on another episode of Tech Policy Grind, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's new podcast. Each episode, we'll hammer out the latest in tech law and policy by talking to friends and fellows of the Foundry. You can find out more about the Internet Law and Policy Foundry by listening to our last episode, but the Foundry is a collection of early career professionals paving the way at the intersection of law and technology. My name is Emery Rohn, 2017 fellow at the Foundry, joined as always by our co-hosts, Joe Jerome and Pinal Shah. Joe is joining us from the Center for Democracy and Technology, where he is an attorney working in the privacy and data team. Pinal is an attorney who is just recently coming off of working with the Obama administration, now working in the GovTech space, advising government on how to break down barriers to partnering with innovative startups and how to be more attracted to the tech industry. Today we'll be talking about an especially exciting and occasionally terrifying area of rapidly developing technology, artificial intelligence, with Tiffany Lee, inaugural fellow at the Foundry and all-around incredibly impressive person. She's an attorney, an expert on privacy, intellectual property, and law and policy at the forefront of new technological innovations. And most recently, Tiffany is now a resident fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project, where she leads the Wikimedia Yale Law School initiative on intermediaries and information. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Emery. So, Tiffany, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now at Yale Law School? Sure. So I'm actually leading a new initiative for Yale Law School's Information Society Project, and this is the Wikimedia and Yale Law School Initiative on Intermediaries and Information, uh, WIII, or WE for short. And WE has two main aims. First, to raise awareness of threats to an open internet especially those affecting online information intermediaries and their users, and to make creative policy suggestions that protect and promote internet-facilitated access to information. Can you give us a little background on what the open internet is in that context? I know that term has sort of changed over the past 20 years or so it's been used. Sure. So broadly speaking, the open internet refers to the the ideals that the internet should be freely accessible by most people around the world, and you should be able to post or express your opinions or beliefs and connect with others on the internet relatively freely. And uh, Tiffany, how did you find yourself in this field? So my background is actually a little varied. I have worked in-house at General Assembly, which is a technology education company. But prior to that, I was a privacy fellow at the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the nonprofit that runs Wikipedia and other free knowledge projects. Really, I entered this field based on my passion for technology and also my longstanding love for science fiction. So during law school, I realized that those science fiction topics that we watch on TV or in the movies or read in books, all of those things are slowly happening in the real world. And what's more, the legal issues involved with that science fiction future are mostly not decided. So during law school, I realized that this was an interesting area of opportunity and an area in which I can make a concrete impact. So that's how I found myself here today, still working on technology law issues, but more on an academic side. So one of the purposes of this show has always been to sort of shine a light on these exciting careers and to maybe show some of our younger listeners or our student listeners that these careers exist. Because I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, when I was an undergraduate, I I didn't actually know that tech law or I could be a lawyer specializing in science fiction reality law. Uh, Do you want to maybe tell our listeners a little bit about that journey that you took? You know, what was it like? going from an undergraduate to a law school student to finally being an attorney working in the trenches? 
So I was actually an English major in college, and I always loved literature, reading, and writing. None of that has really anything to do with technology except for this. When you are studying literature, you're really studying society. You're studying the way that societies talk about themselves and form narratives about you know, their own lives. If you think about technology then, it's really going back to that science fiction point I made earlier. If you think about technology, you have to think about the future and what a future society would mean. Of course, as lawyers, the default then is to think about what laws that society would have or need. So my path from being an English major in college to becoming a technology lawyer now is I think really just based on my love for stories and narratives. I like to imagine what the future might be. I like to understand what society holds as values or beliefs that are important. And that's a running theme throughout my career. So I would say that if you are, for example, a law student or even an undergraduate without a computer science degree, without an engineering degree, that doesn't mean at all that you can't embark upon a technical uh, technology law career. Because technology law really isn't about, you know, if you can actually code or if you can actually create anything uh, technical. It's more about understanding the values and the ethics behind technology and seeing where the law might take that in the future. Thank you. That's an awesome point I, that I really want to drive home through the throughout the entirety of this podcast. Uh, that you know, the the tech law field it may help to be a coder. It certainly helps uh, to be have a technical background, but uh, it is not at all a a bar to our younger listeners that are interested in getting to the field. Yeah, that's a great point, Emery. So Tiffany, one of the Wikimedia slash Yale Law School's missions is to raise awareness of threats to an open internet, especially those facing online intermediaries and their users. Can you briefly explain, for those that don't know, what an online intermediary is, and secondly, what you consider to be the biggest threat to open internet right now? Interesting. So the first question is easy to answer. The second may take a little bit more thought. Essentially, an information intermediary is a website or another information venue that can act as a neutral third party, hence the word intermediary. These intermediaries host or support other individuals, including users sometimes, to communicate, share, or transfer information. So think of Facebook, think of Google, think of YouTube, Twitter, Wikipedia, and so on. You ask, what are the greatest threats to the open internet right now? There are a few things you have to understand first. Because the internet is international in scope, there are no ways to create borders on the internet. What this means is that any information intermediary has to, in essence, be international. So there are a few laws right now that are upcoming that may negatively affect information intermediaries. This also will affect the concept of the open internet. Right now, information intermediaries are able to give a neutral space for communication to occur. This means you can freely express your opinions even about things that, for example, certain governments or certain companies or certain private persons may not appreciate. This is important for people, especially in certain countries, where repressive regimes generally crack down on free speech. It's also important here in the United States because free speech is such a fundamental value um, in American society. So any threat, I would say, that threatens the ability for these information intermediaries to provide this neutral venue is basically a threat to the open internet and a threat to free speech. 
So we have some issues coming up right now. We have the upcoming EU copyright law discussion uh, and discussions about revamping the EU digital single market laws. We also have laws in the United States that have the potential of chilling free speech, but also could have the potential of helping content moderation or helping people online. So we have the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, or SESTA, which is of much debate at the moment, valued or paid attention to as much as they perhaps should be. And this is happening both in the US and in Europe and around the world. Now, this is a key threat to open internet because the values that we believe in strongly as a democracy, which include free speech, uh, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of assembly, and so on, these values are not only inherently democratic, but also inherently part of an open internet. So if we see the erosion of democratic values worldwide, what we really also see then is the erosion of the possibilities of even having an open internet in the first place. So I believe that right now the most important thing we should focus on isn't just the specific laws of different countries that may affect intermediaries. We need to understand this problem of engaging with democracy or engaging with our democratic values on a larger scale and understand that that's our responsibility, not just as citizens, but as a technology industry that provides these venues for free expression and for democratic values to be upheld. Maybe this is a, a tremendously awkward segue, um, but one thing that we were interested in talking to you about is the fact that you and a number of co-authors recently co-authored a paper on humans forget, machines remember, artificial intelligence, and the right to be forgotten. Um, so I, I know I know we want we brought you on here to sort of talk about your thoughts on artificial intelligence, um, but you you were mentioning democratic values, uh, and that sort of makes me sort of wonder if you want to sort of transition into how that applies to something like the right to be forgotten, since your paper is about that. I think that artificial intelligence right now is something that is on the top of everyone's minds in terms of technology law, but there are implications that are relevant to really any sector of law and most sectors of society. For example, right now we have a debate about whether artificial intelligence can be used as part of, say, sentencing algorithms for criminal justice. That's something that people discuss a lot. Uh, also of much debate is the use of AI in different technologies for consumer products. Uh, one problem or one possible problem with this is that these AI products may have inherent biases that are programmed into them by the people designing the products. So when we talk about AI, we do have to talk about issues like equality and fairness. Uh, we also eventually get to issues like free speech and privacy when you consider the fact that pretty much every large tech company right now is investing heavily in AI, not just for creating new products, but also for the existing products that are marketed to consumers right now. For example, if we go back to the idea of information intermediaries, we see artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms being used for things like content moderation. So automatic flagging of fake news on Facebook or automatic takedowns of harassing comments on Twitter, that kind of thing. That's still AI, but it's happening right now. It's not Skynet, it's actually 2017. Artificial intelligence seems to be something of a moving target. Um, for the purposes of your paper, or at least how you think about things, what is artificial intelligence to you? 
So in this context, we're not talking about a super intelligent AI that is capable of thinking on its own and that could possibly be considered to be human, right? We're not talking about the Terminator or a Skynet sort of AI. Here in this context, at least in terms of current privacy law, I'm looking at AI in terms of just say advanced machine learning algorithms that take in training data and are able to draw conclusions from data given into them. So what are the privacy implications then of this form of AI? Now I've written a recent paper that deals with the right to be forgotten and artificial intelligence. The right to be forgotten for those of you who may not be privacy law nerds is the EU concept that individuals have a right to seek to have their data removed or deleted. Now what this means in practice is that you, potentially, could send a letter to Facebook asking that the Facebook deletes all data they have on you, that you then are forgotten. Provided, that is, that you are a European. This goes back to the point you brought up earlier that the internet is a borderless international system, right? The right to be forgotten is one of those regulations that applies to the EU and not to the US. So you can imagine sort of the uh, problems that American uh, intermediaries and platforms have to deal with when they're trying to negotiate that, that mess. Exactly. This is an EU only concept at the moment. But as you see in the past, many times, especially with privacy legislation, I think the EU does play a leading role internationally. So we may see more countries and more regions take on this concept of the right to be forgotten. And this, of course, becomes somewhat of a burden for technology companies to have to deal with these requests. In my paper, uh, my co-authors and I posit that not only is it somewhat of a burden for these technology companies, but it also might not even be physically possible to comply with the right to be forgotten as it's currently delineated in the EU law. So it's difficult to fully comply with the right to be forgotten requirement under the GDPR if you're dealing with artificial intelligence or machine learning environments. And the reason why it's difficult is that deletion is difficult. If you're required as a company to delete all data you have on one person, then you have to know, first of all, what does it mean to delete data? And it seems like an overly simplistic concept, but it really isn't if you actually look into what it means for uh, a computer to delete data. So for example, if you have an artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithm that is trained on a certain set of data that includes data from your customers, and then one of your customers comes back and requests that their data be deleted, there are a few different options. Like what does this actually mean? So first, you could just delete their data from the training set. Sure, fine, that could be possible. However, does that actually change the algorithmic model you've created? And if so, do you have to do something to edit the model that has then been created or to edit the predictions that have been made based on the model that was used for the training data through which your customer gave information? Right, that's one of the problems with AI, or not one of the problems, but one of the uh, the properties of AI and machine learning, right? It, it's sort of a black box technology. As I understand it, you have the black box machine learning algorithm, you train it on a data set, but then we can't even really tell exactly how it took the data set and took that data set and made conclusions off of that set. Is that about right? 
Exactly. So that's definitely so Tiffany. You know, it's a really interesting balance between having the right to delete, if you want to call it, unsavory information about oneself. Um, But then there's this balance against sort of this transparency rewriting of history type thing. Right now, you mentioned that the right to be forgotten is an applicable EU law only. Do you think it will eventually be applicable here in the US? It's often construed here as a form of censorship. So do you see those cultural differences? And and how does the culture of the First Amendment play into this? So I do think that the right to be forgotten is a concept that we don't really have here in the United States. And again, in the U.S., we value free speech almost to the exclusion of many other rights that other countries or regions may value. I don't think the right to be forgotten will be something that U.S. lawmakers take up anytime soon, or even U.S. civil societies. However, again, the Internet is international, which means that these tech companies have to follow the right to be forgotten and that form of legal request, uh, request making, if they want to be able to sell their products or to have their internet uh, websites available in different regions. So the issue then is if you can't actually delete data or if deleting data doesn't even make sense or doesn't make a difference, then it's difficult or maybe even impossible for any company to actually comply with the right to be forgotten requirement under the GDPR. And I think that's a huge problem. You can't have a law that says people have to do something but then make it impossible for those people to actually comply. So do you guys have any solutions? We do have one major solution. I think our first major solution or recommendation is that we need to have more interdisciplinary research and interdisciplinary collaboration between policymakers and scientists, people who work on the technical end of things. I think it's clear if you read about the GDPR and exactly what it requires that there weren't that many technical people involved in drafting the law. And this is true with every law that affects technology. And it's one of, I think, the key areas in which the Internet Law and Policy Foundry is able to make an impact. I think, I mean, the rest of you can also chime in or correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that our organization is unique in that we foster the growth of young professionals who are focused specifically on technology policy. And this is vitally important because policy right now needs more people who actually understand technology. And like we mentioned earlier, you don't have to be a computer scientist. You don't have to have majored in CS or electrical engineering or anything like that. What's important is that you understand the technology issues and that you know how to apply the law and policy to those issues so that eventually, if those of us in the Internet Law and Policy Foundry or those of you out there in the audience want to embark on this kind of career, you are able to actually help draft the laws or help interpret the laws in a way that makes sense for technology. I think that's one of the key problems that my paper raises. And one of the solutions is really this kind of interdisciplinary approach and sort of supporting people who are able to understand technology and use that understanding to create better and more applicable law. Well, I think that's a great time to sort of segue to our closing segment, but I did want to uh, close with just maybe one or two more questions on that point. Um, we talked a little earlier about the way that um, young um students or listeners or people that are interested in the area but that may not have that technical or comp sci background uh, can get into the field, but you know 
do you have any more recommendations or any other advice for our younger listeners right now that are listening to this show or that maybe listening to the news and reeling from the realization that uh, we desperately need more people that understand both technology and policy in the tech policy space? So I have one piece of advice that I tell everybody who asks me about anything related to careers, and that is to talk to as many people as you possibly can. What this means is first, of course, talking to your professors. If you have professors who study or practice law um, regarding technology, talk to them first. If you're an undergrad, you can reach out to professors in your local law schools or in your poli-sci or related departments. What this also means, though, is talking to people who you may not have ever met in your life. And it might be a little difficult at first, but I think that reaching out to people who do things career-wise or otherwise that you're interested in is vitally important. So you can look up people on LinkedIn, you can look at our profiles on the Internet Law and Policy Foundry website, find people who are doing things that you would like to do in the future, and just shoot them an email. Check in, see if they're open for a quick talk, a quick phone call, maybe a quick coffee, and ask them what they did to get where they are. So today you've learned a bit about what I did to get to where I am. And I think that one of the things that's great about this podcast is that you're learning a, ver a variety of different career paths in technology policy. But if you want to be proactive and you want to get into this space early, I think what you should do is really just that simple. Just talk to as many people as you possibly can. All right, Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us. So we hear a lot of career advice from Tiffany, uh, and if you happen to listen to our first episode of The Grind, you'll know that part of the Foundry's impetus was to formalize Ali Sternberg's job board for tech jobs. Uh, and let me tell you, there are a lot of great new listings in technology law up this week on our site. Um, so whether you're keeping an eye out for new opportunities for yourself or for a friend, um, we wanted to flag a few new openings. Um, first, uh, I may be a bit biased here, but as a so-called privacy pro, um, there are a ton of great jobs in privacy law and compliance that, that are open these days. Um, and if the International Association of Privacy Professionals is right, um, I think the Foundry might be posting tens of thousands of privacy jobs for the next few years. But for now, uh, first up, um, Best Buy is looking for a privacy counsel in Minnesota, and Farm Credit Bank of Texas is looking for a data privacy analyst. So yes, the Foundry does feature jobs outside of D.C. and San Francisco and the coasts. Um, that said, uh, Time is looking for an associate counsel in New York City to work in marketing and advertising. Um, so that'll probably entail a lot of online privacy work, too, in addition to lots of contractual work. Um, on the other side of the country, out west, Apple is also hiring. Um, Apple is looking for a privacy and information security council uh, to join their team in Santa Clara uh, to work with both their business and engineering teams to design innovative privacy and security solutions for all of its many exciting products and services. Uh, so hopefully a future Foundry fellow can be my go-to when I get worried about what is up with Face ID. Um, also, the Foundry's unofficial favorite social network, Twitter, is looking for a public policy manager. You'd be based here in D.C., uh, so fortunately or unfortunately, you might run into me once in a while as you hit the halls of Congress to protect information intermediaries. Uh, finally, I wanted to point out that the, the Georgetown Center of National Security and Law hosts a two-year National Security Law Fellow for law graduates uh, to tackle complicated national security issues. So if Section 702 is your jam, you should look into this. Applications are due early in 2018. 
Um, you can find full listings for these jobs and much, much more uh, at the Foundry's website. Um, if you're listening to us now, you probably already know what an excellent resource this posting or this job board is. Um, <clears throat> but if you happen to be an employer looking to hire someone at the intersection of law and technology, please drop us a line. Posting a job is free. Just email us at job-board at ilpfoundry.us. Everybody, apply today. As they say, you can't win if you don't play. Okay, so thank you, Tiffany, and thank you, listener, for sticking with us through another episode of Tech Policy Grind. If you're still listening to the show, we want to thank you, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. Of course, the show is still a work in progress, so if you have any suggestions on how we can improve, we hope that you reach out to us. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm going to be found at Twitter at Emery Roan. Pinal at Woman of Fuego. Joe Jerome at Joe Jerome. And you can find out more about the Internet Law and Policy Foundry by going to our website at ilpfoundry.us. You can and should check out Tiffany on Twitter at TiffanyCLI. And if you like what you heard, we really hope that you can rate and review us on iTunes. Maybe share the show with a friend and tell us on social media. It really helps a lot. Next week, we'll be continuing our discussion on algorithms and the justice system, talking to Will Reinhardt, a fellow Foundry fellow who will tell us about what it's like to work for a think tank in the heart of D.C. and how his work in algorithms may indicate that our perceptions on their role in the justice system are maybe misplaced. I think it's going to be a really great episode, so we hope that you'll be joining us. Until then, thank you for listening to another episode of Tech Policy Grind, and we'll catch you later. Bye.